Welcome to the Way Community Podcast. Here you'll find various teachings and messages from within our community and also from guest speakers. If you're interested in finding out more about us, visit our website, the-way.com.au. We pray that this episode edifies you. Amen. Alrighty, well, uh, we're going to make a start. And uh, tonight we are looking at the rapture of the church. And uh, it's not very cool anymore. It's not a a thing that a lot of people uh, like to believe in. There's this idea that it's... um, a spurious doctrine that was introduced uh, in the late 1800s that there are certain people that um, uh, invented it and that uh, the the New Testament church had um, no such belief. Well, I think that uh, you may have a different opinion of that, but uh, I want to start off the, the rapture is one of those things that when you talk about it, when you start to unpack it, it seems like a totally preposterous idea. And uh, I, I love a, a quote that was made by Richard Feynman, um, who was from the California Institute of Technology, when he was talking about a process called string theory. And... Uh, <clears throat> was uh, unpacking the idea of quantum mechanics. And he, he made this quotable quote. He said, I think it is safe to say that no one understands quantum mechanics. In fact, it is often stated that of all the theories proposed in this century, the silliest is quantum theory. Some say that the only thing that quantum theory has going for it, in fact, is that is a that is that it is unquestionably correct. Now, uh, that's, you know, a thing from a quantum theorist, but I think that it relates really well to the rapture as well. And uh, so I've taken that quote and I've requoted it uh, to sound like this. I think it is safe to say that no one understands the rapture. <laughs> In fact, it is often stated that of all the theories proposed in the Bible, the silliest is the rapture. Some say that the only thing that the rapture has going for it, in fact, is that it is unquestionably correct. (laughs) Uh, So of all the supernatural and strange ideas contained in the scripture, the concept of the rapture would have to stand out as the craziest. But in saying that, I want to start putting to rest some of the myths that surround the rapture uh, and unmuddy the waters on the subject a little. The first thing that comes up on this subject is that the rapture isn't in the Bible. And you're absolutely right. You can flick through any English version you like, and you will not find the word rapture, nor will you find the word trinity. Now, does anyone here then believe that the trinity is false? 
glad to see no hands are going up. You see, the word rapture is not a word that you'll find in Scripture, just like you won't find the word trinity in Scripture. It's, it's a theological term that is used to portray a concept. We talked, was it last week or the week before, when I said 9-11? And you only have to say the term 9-11 and it encapsulates a whole series of thoughts and ideas and emotions for an event that took place. In the same way, the word rapture is the encapsulation of a concept that you will soon find is echoed right throughout the New Testament. Now, no, you're not going to find it in the Old Testament. And there's a very good reason for it. It's because the rapture is for the church. And the church was hidden from the prophets. They had no idea that we were coming. So it stands to reason that there is not going to be any revelation of the rapture in the Old Testament. There's plenty about the second coming, but there's none about the rapture. Does that make sense? But let's have a look at what the, where we get this concept from. So, first of all, as I've said, it is a theological term used to describe the concept that's throughout Scripture, but it does appear in the Latin Bible, and this is where we get the word rapture from, is out of the Latin Bible, which uses the word rapiamur. Now, the question is, well, what were they using that word for? Because the original scripture wasn't written in Latin. What language was it written in? Or languages? Three languages. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. That's right. Now, when we're talking about the New Testament, we're talking about Greek. So the original Greek does have a word that is used for this event, and the word is harpazo. Now, harpazo uh, is who he's, you know, used the strongs and, you know, if, if you... If you've got a Strong's, you can look up the word in there. But the meaning of the word is to seize, to carry off by force, to claim for oneself eagerly, to snatch out or snatch away. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at a series of scriptures, none of which have the word rapture, but all of which have the word harpazo. And what I want you to see, we're not looking at rapture scriptures here. What I want to show you is the use of this word harpazo, where we see it used and how it is being used, okay? Now, of course, we're not reading ancient Greek. We don't have any ancient Greek um, linguists here, do we? No, no, not tonight. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to read these scriptures in English and uh, for, for those of you that are listening, you're not going to be able to pick this up, but the words that, or word or words that have been translated from the word harpazo, I'm going to mark in red, but I'll, I'll make sure that I 
um, identified as we read it. In fact, what I'll do is, you, if, if you're playing at home, uh, you can have a look at these scriptures and I'm going to replace what it says with the word harpazo so you get the idea, all right? So the first one is found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. And it reads, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent harpazo. Take it by force, right? So the violent harpazo. You get the picture? Let's have a look at a few more of these. Uh, Matthew uh, 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one, so this is a scripture from the parable of the, um, the seed sower, right? Uh, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and harpazos what was sown in his heart or snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Get the idea? John 6, 15. We read this. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, as they were about to come and harpazo him to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself. Are you seeing the, the flavour of this word? All right. Uh, John 10, verse 12. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf harpazos the sheep, catches the sheep. Snatches it up. Yeah? Another one. John 10, 28. One of the things that you're going to see in this session tonight is a lot of Scripture. I'm, I'm going to be giving you so much Scripture tonight, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but the thing is, when you walk out of here, if anyone tries to say to you, oh, well, the rapture's not in the Bible, you're going to be going, look, I beg to differ um, because Todd's given me about 30-odd scriptures to prove the point, okay? All right. Now, of course, none of these scriptures are about the rapture, at least not yet, but they're all the words, all, all the scriptures that use this word harpazo, so you get the idea of the common use of this word harpazo. So again, John 10, 28. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone harpazo them out of my hand. Neither will anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to harpazo them out of my Father's hand. You see? Snatching again. Now, here's an interesting one. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 39. This is Philip. So Philip has been baptising the eunuch. And we read in verse 39 of chapter 8, Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord harpazoed Philip away. 
so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. What happened to Philip? What, what's the word you would like to use for it? He translocated, translated, but what, however you want to describe it, he was snatched out of this space-time continuum and instantaneously put down in another part of Israel. So he was well and truly body, soul and spirit harpazoed to another place. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 to 4. I know a man in Christ, so, so this is Paul speaking in the third person about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was harpazoed to the third heaven, caught up to the third heaven. Ah, isn't this interesting? I don't know if it happened in the body or if it happened in the spirit, but what I do know is 14 years ago, I was harpazoed. Isn't that interesting? How he was harpazoed into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So he's, he's saying he was caught up into the third heaven. Not sure if it was by in the body or in the spirit, but nonetheless, he was caught up. Jude 1.23. But others, save with fear, are part sowing them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by flesh. And so here Jude is saying that there are those who will be snatched, pulled out at the last moment, rescued as if from fire. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, a very, very, very interesting chapter. Probably the most difficult chapter to untangle in the book of Revelation. But verse 5 tells us in chapter 12, she bore a male child who was called to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was harpazoed to God and his throne. Caught up is what's used in the English language. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we who are alive and remain... Now, this is, this is a rapture scripture. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to, to as you read this scripture, see the meaning of the word. You've seen all of these scriptures that use the word harpazo. And what's the, what's the flavor of that word? Have you got the idea of what that word is used for now? It's everything from the birds snatching the seed off, off the path that the sower had thrown out. It is Philip being snatched up and caught away and taken to another place. It's Paul, whether in the body or the spirit, he doesn't know, but he was caught up into the third heaven. And then Paul, writing to this new baby church, says, then, verse 17 of chapter 4, then we who are alive and remain, we who are alive and remain shall be harpazoed together with them, those that have been raised from the dead, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. 
So, the concept of harpazo is clearly defined through its contextual use throughout Scripture, that there is a forcible, perhaps even violent, snatching up and snatching away. And everywhere else that this word is used, we see that picture, and then we also see that clearly defined for us by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So I think that that does a good job of outlining for us what harpazo means. To seize, to carry off by force, to seize upon, to claim for oneself eagerly, to snatch out or snatch away. So is that a good definition for harpazo? Feel like you've got that squared away? All right. So there we've looked at we, we've looked at all these words that describe harpazo leading up to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which marries this word to this idea of, of the church, the, the believers, dead and alive, being harpazoed into heaven. Now, of course, that's good, Todd, but you don't go building a doctrine on one scripture. Am I right or am I right? Yeah, okay. So you're going to, I mean, if, if you guys are going to shoot me down on this subject um, or at least believe me on this subject, then I guess I better provide you with at least one more scripture to back this concept of the rapture. Is that right? So let's have a look at some scriptures to confirm the concept of the rapture. Now, the rest of these scriptures don't have the word harpazo in them, all right? But what they do is they paint out different aspects and, and elements of the idea that Paul is referring to explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Am I making sense? Yeah. So we've looked at the word and then we've seen the word in 1 Thessalonians 4. Where else do we get this idea painted out for us? Well, I have found a few other scriptures on the subject. So this is a list and what we're going to do is we're going to look at these scriptures that encompass the, cop the, the concept and the doctrine of the rapture. Now, for those of you playing at home and for those that are here, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get... Now, I see some of you are furiously typing on your phones. Others are, are working on paper. What we're going to do together is this. We're going to go through each of these scriptures. We're going to look at some key ideas or concepts that we can draw out of those scriptures. And then we're going to make a list of concepts with proof scriptures next to them. Does that make sense? So if you, want to, if you want to play at home, then what I suggest you do is you write the word rapture at the start as a heading, and then I'm going to show you a scripture. We're going to talk about the concepts that we get out of it. Then you can write down, under your word rapture, you can write down the concept and put the proof text next to it. And if we hit another scripture that has the same concept, guess what we'll do? We'll put that proof, uh, proof text 
next to that concept as well, and we will build out a list of ideas with proof texts around the rapture. Does that make sense? Some of you are looking at me vaguely. It will start to make sense as we build it. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it on screen as well, so you can actually play along and just copy what I'm doing on screen. It'll make life easy for you, all right? It's like I'm spoon-feeding this, right? It's so important. It's like, now, come on, little birds. Ah, <laughs> I'm going to feed it to you. So let's have a look at our first scripture, which is John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, remember, Paul, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, in that, or in that passage, he ends by saying, we, we talked about it last week, therefore, what? Encourage one another with these words. Right? So the idea of the rapture is that it's not supposed to be a terrifying event. It is a wonderful event. And as we talked about last week, the idea that we are going to boldly walk into the, the courts of heaven after our, our life has passed through the firewall and all the wood, hay and stubble is burned off and we walk in to face the seat or the throne of rewards so that the, the Lord Jesus can look at us and inspect us very carefully to find every single reason he can find to reward you. That is the inspection that you face is He's going to go, hmm, let's look at this life. Let's unpack it carefully and find every single reason to reward this person. Okay? So let's look at this scripture, John 14, verse 1 to 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. If uh, there is more than enough room in my father's home, if this were not so would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. So what are the ideas or concepts that we get out of this scripture? Well, number one, Jesus is going away to prepare a place for us. Number two, he will come to get us. And number three, the rapture is not to be feared. So here's what we're going to do. Under our big heading, the rapture, we're going to write not to be feared. We're going to write going to prepare a place and he will come and get us. And then next to those three, you can write John 14, 1 to 3. Do you see what we're doing? And this way, we're going to pull out the concepts of the rapture and we're going to line up the scriptures that tell us this. So the great thing about this is when we're finished and someone says, oh, no, I'm scared of the rapture, you're going to be able to say, well, let me show you all the scriptures that say that you're not to fear it. Yeah? All right, let's... Uh, have you all guys all got that down? Yeah? No? Yes? Let's move on to the next scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. 
Now, from here on in, now that you're starting to get the idea, I'm going to move a little quicker because we've got a few scriptures to get through. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 to 8. Now, you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus comes. So we've got two key things we can bring out of this scripture, that there is eager expectation for the believer and that we should have no fear of judgment, no judgment involved with the rapture. So we can write eager expectation and no judgment and put 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 next to that. So getting the idea of the game now? Yep. All right. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 to 44. There's two key ideas that we're bringing out in this, that the body is raised and the body is glorified. In the same way that with the resurrection of the dead, our earthly bodies are planted into the ground when we die, but they are raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. So the fact that the body will be raised and the body will be glorified are the two things that we get from this scripture. So we can go and add them to our list. Body raised. Body glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44 for both of those references. Next, let's move on to 1 Corinthians 15, 50. What am I saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. So we learn here that the body needs to be glorified to inherit the kingdom. So glorification is required for inheritance of the kingdom. You cannot, now isn't this interesting? You cannot inherit, yeah, who's part of the kingdom? Is anyone here part of the kingdom now? See, there's another kingdom that's being spoken about here, another realm, as our, our friend Dan Duval will no doubt talk about when he's here. Realms, right? Play, places of dominion. There is another realm that you cannot enter into without your body being glorified first. 1 Corinthians 15.50 brings that out. Let's continue on to our verses... 51 to 53. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. Is anyone going, whoa, there's a lot in this. I'm learning a lot about the rapture in this scripture. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. 
for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. So there's a whole bunch of things to unpack from this. None of us will die, or, or sorry, not, not all of us are going to die. It's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The twinkling of an eye, the time that it takes for light to refract from the cornea to the retina is about the time that it's going to take for you to be transformed. Do you like that? <laughs> in, in, in a fraction of a second, I, I actually heard at one point it's the, the time that that takes and it's, you know, a ridiculous sort of number, you know, 10 to the minus something or other, you know, milliseconds, it's crazy. Um, there will also be a great noise, a last trumpet. Now, it's not referring to one of the things that people read. It's like, oh, see, the rapture happens at the last trumpet. No. The, the seven trumpets that are written in the book of Revelation, that was written way after this was written. So when Paul makes reference to the last trump, he's not talking about the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. But he says, last trump time, what's he talking about? Well, being a good Jew, do you think there might be something going on in Jewish custom that he might have been referring to? And yes, there is what is known as the Feast of Trumpets. And in the Feast of Trumpets, at the end of the Feast of Trumpets, everybody who's got one, gets it and they let out one big, long, loud blast for as long as they can and everybody all across the nation lets out that big blast all together. And he's saying, when Jesus returns, the trumpet that you hear is going to be so big and noisy, the only thing I can relate it to is the last trump of the Feast of Trumpets. Okay, now I'm, I'm just throwing that in there because people see that last trump and they try to hook it to the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation and that's how you end up with people with mid-trib views and that sort of thing. They, they're not the same thing. They're totally different things. When Paul wrote this, he was, he was writing to the Corinthian church way before... John has his revelation experience. So Paul at this point has no concept of John's seven trumpets when he's writing this to the Corinthian church. Is that helpful? All right. The Christian dead are going to be raised to life and living Christian bodies will be transformed. So let's put all that into our list. So where you've got the Christian body raised, you can add 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53 there. Then you can also add not all of us will die. Put the same reference. You can put in it will happen in a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53 again. That it's going to happen with a great noise. You can write great noise. Put that scripture in. 
and the living believers will be transformed. So we'll add that in as well. So we've learned lots from that scripture. Let's keep going with 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 54 to 55. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? So the victory over sin and death is another part of the rapture. So we can add that to our list. Victory over sin and death, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 55. So who's thinking that the Bible's got a little bit to say about the rapture so far? Well, have we got like four or five scriptures? So I think, you know, we've got, we've got somewhere to start building a doctrine on here, right? But maybe there's a few more. Let's keep looking. Chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. If anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. Our Lord, come. Or as it was put in the original Greek, Maranatha. This is where this was. So the context of this scripture, after everything that he's talking about, he says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, if anyone's not looking for this, let him be a curse. Jesus, come quickly. Our Lord, come. Maranatha. And so it's it was actually... A phrase that was used for the expect the expectation of the return of the Lord. So we can put 1 Corinthians 16:22 next to eager expectation. And if you're looking for that in your list, it's about four down. All right. First, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus returns. Now you'd say, well, doesn't that mean, you know, the second coming? No, he's talking to the church here. So the day that he's returning for his church is the day of the rapture. So this is a rapture scripture. So what do we learn from this? That there's a work that is completed. I was talking to someone just this morning. We were talking about... The, you know, wrestling with, with sin and, and, you know, how long should we expect that battle to go on for? Well, if it goes on for the whole of our lives, the sweet blessed hope is that it gets completed the day that we're raptured. So there's another reason to eagerly look forward to that day. It's all this wrestling and fighting that, that I'm doing is going to be over in a moment. So he completes the work in us, Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.10. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. So his, his return, the rapture, promotes purity. So let's add promotes purity to our list with Philippians 1.10 next to it. Philippians 2.16. Who's, who's read Philippians recently? 
Has anyone, have you noticed all of these scriptures? Isn't it interesting? Sometimes we can read through things, we, we've got blinkers on. We're not really seeing what it's saying to us. Hold firmly to the word of life then. On the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. So the rapture promotes a desire for the word. So we can add that to the list. See, again, our rapture people are just sitting around not waiting for Jesus to return. They don't do anything. No, one thing that belief in this does is it gives you a desire for the word of the Lord. Philippians 3.20. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are, look, here it is again, eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So there's, there's a, a couple of things here. Number one, eagerly waiting. You can put it next to eagerly waiting, um, eager expectation. And uh, bodies are transformed. So we, we can add that into uh, next to body glorified. So uh, we've got eager expectation. I didn't put that in my own list here. But yeah, we've got Philippians 3.20, eager expectation and body glorified. Philippians 4.5. Let everyone see that you are considerate or the word here means like aware or intentional in all you do. Now, isn't that language of the way? You know, intentional living. Intentional living is about, remember, the Lord is coming soon. Be intentional about the way that you live because the Lord's coming soon. So again, eager expectation. So we can put Philippians 4.5 up against eager expectation. See, the, look at all these scriptures. We've now got four scriptures about eagerly awaiting for this event. Uh, does it really matter? Should we really be worrying about this? Well, we've got four scriptures to build a doctrine on that says that you should be eagerly looking for this. Isn't that interesting? All right, let's change books. See, we've only done what? What are we up to? We've done John, 1 Corinthians, Philippians. We've, we've only hit like three books. <laughs> Let's have a look at 1 Thessalonians. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven. What's that? Eager expectation. Jesus whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming Judgment. Look at that, folks. There it is, black and white. He who? Who's he? Jesus. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. So if you have any concerns, any fears, any terror of facing the Lord on the day of judgment, here it is black and white in scripture, you are rescued from coming judgment. 
So we can add eager expectation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And we can also add it to, uh, we can add saves us from the coming wrath or no judgment, however you want to put it in. Yeah, that's right. We've already got one, no judgment. So you can put it there. But uh, I like the idea that it's, it's that rescuing from terror. Yeah. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. So notice that. He says, after all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand. Now, this little, this little word here paints out this whole concept of you having to stand alone before the Lord, cowering in judgment because he says hope and joy as we stand before the Lord. So what does this tell us? that when we face him, we stand together. So this isn't like someone facing an inquisition to find out whether they are up for judgment or not. No, I, I, I painted this out before. You know, I, I'm looking forward to the day that I can stand there and, and you know, as, as a shepherd, when Jesus says, Son, what did you do with what I gave you to be able to turn around and point to you all and say, Father, here they are. Here they are. All of those ones, they're here. This is my reward, right? So um, we, we get to stand together. So we can add that. We stand together before the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. Wow, who would have thought that there'd be so many scriptures on the rapture? Well, we haven't even hit the official one yet. And that's coming up now, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. This is kind of like the, the um, snapshot, the, the hinge scripture for this. And, and people go, well, yeah, everyone makes it out of this one scripture. No, this... This one scripture encapsulates so much of what we're seeing, painted out in all these other ones. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that Jesus returns. God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. You notice the same thing that he wrote to the Corinthians. He's writing to the Thessalonians. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up, harpazoed in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air, then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. So here's a whole bunch of things that we learn from this scripture. It involves the believers who have died. It involves the believers who are living. Well, we've, got, we've already mentioned those. It's a loud noise. We've got that. Christians are resurrected. All believers living and dead are caught up and forever we are with Christ. So we can add to the Christians being resurrected. We, we put 1 Thessalonians 4 in there. And um, we can also put in all believers are caught up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. It's really important that because there, there is this idea that only like the spiritual believers will be caught up. I don't know what that measurement is. I don't know how people kind of work that out. I believe a believer is a believer. I don't, it doesn't matter how how shabby they are with their life in Christ. If they confess him and they love him, I am quite certain that Jesus knows who is actually a believer and who's not. So all believers are caught up and we are forever with Christ. Forever. Now that's a really important point. because it suggests that the things that other things that Paul says about us reigning with Christ in heavenly places, being seated with him, co-heirs, maybe he actually meant just that. Maybe there isn't. Maybe we're not coming back. Maybe, like he said, we are actually strangers and foreigners and aliens and we're just passing through on the way to our real home. Maybe the earth isn't our home. But Todd, man was created for the earth. Were we? Or were we created for God? Something to think about.